All right, part 50 in our study of Law and Gospel. Far more uh, messages than 50, but part 50 in this. All right, we're in thesis what? Eight. Thesis number eight, because it's the longest one, and it's going to take us forever to finish, and because we keep interrupting to do other things. I keep uh, using thesis eight to answer emails, but we've answered all the emails currently. I haven't checked since I've been here. So if there's another one, they'll have to wait. I'm not going to look. All right. Um, Let's just remember the thesis. The thesis is that the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is what? Preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins or when the gospel is preached to those who are living securely in their sins. Everybody remember that? Okay. We look, and what's the key passage here for this thesis? 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. We're not going to go back and read it, but you definitely need to know that passage. In fact, I would say 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, in, in my mind, should really be the, the key passage for the whole study. All right? I really do in some ways, because it talks about using the law in what way? A, in a lawful way. Is that not how it, I think it's how it's stated? Lawfully, lawfully, lawfully. So that means that there is an unlawful way to use it, all right? So we got all of that. Then go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we spent a little bit of time on this, but we just need a place to kind of get resituated and jump back into it. And hopefully this will be a good place. Matthew chapter 7. All right, and we read these words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, neither cast ye pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Now, dogs typically was a reference to what? Either physical dogs... Are Gentiles? We kind of—I think we kind of proved that to some level. It could also kind of reference uh, the ungodly, right? Which Gentiles was used almost as a synonym for the ungodly. So this is telling us not to 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 do what? Don't give that which is holy unto the dogs. Now is that meaning? So now, if you're not careful, what would that mean? Well, the unbeliever doesn't deserve what? The gospel. Right? So, but, and we would obviously not believe that, right? So how do we understand it? That there is a time you don't give the dog, right? The unbeliever, the gospel, because they will do what according to this? Tear it up, right? Okay? Uh, and it says not, don't give the dog what, uh, and it says don't give what, uh, the pearls to swine, because they will do what? Trample it. In other words, there's a time you can give the gospel to someone and they don't, they're comfortable in their sin, right? They, they don't care. Like, what, what, what's the gospel going to look like to them? Nothing. Because the gospel isn't worth anything to anyone until they feel what? The weight of their sin. So someone living comfortable in their sin, they need what? Law. They need law. They need the 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 law. Once they feel the weight of their sin and now they're broken and realize they're guilty, what do they need? The gospel. All right. Does everybody remember that? Okay. 
We, we talked about that. Remember how the book put it? What is meant by what is holy? Nothing else than the word of Christ. Which, what is meant by pearls? The consolation of the gospel with the grace, righteousness, and salvation it proclaims. Of these things we're not to speak to dogs, that is to the enemies of the gospel, nor swine, that is such who want to remain in their sins and are seeking their heaven and their bliss and the filth of their sins. Those people need the law of God. So once again, it just determines. Now, we remember, I just want to make sure we stress this. We always have to realize that our perception of who needs law and who needs gospel is always fallible, right? So we always have to be extremely careful not to just immediately rush in and go, no, Bobby, you don't get any gospel, you get all law. We've got to be careful and make sure we approach it with some form of patience and a little bit of mercy and being willing to do a lot of listening, not just judging, right? Does that make sense? And now look at Isaiah 26.10. Isaiah 26.10, have we looked at this one? All right. Isaiah 26.10, is this in your notes, Sarah? All right, so I'm going to say we're, we haven't covered this one. We're, if it's not in Sarah's notes, then it's dogmatically declared that we haven't covered it. Okay, well, I mean, if someone emails me and says you did, then I blame you. See, I don't blame me. See, that's the way. So I, I like doing that. Okay, well, that's not acceptable. All right. Isaiah 26.10. All right, Isaiah 26.10. And what do we find here? Everybody look at it. And before I read it, what do you see? Isaiah 26.10. Everybody, I'll give you a chance to look at it before I read it. I want you to think about it. Isaiah 26.10, Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. How does that read in the NIV? Now, obviously, this has a historical setting, and we would have to figure all of that out. But the primary principle is what? You're showing grace to the wicked, and what are they doing with it? Basically throwing it aside. All right? So, this is how the book puts it. Um, It is quite useless to offer mercy to the godless. They imagine either that they do not need it, or that they already have all of it. The trifling sins, they say, of which they are guilty, have long been forgiven. To a person of this stripe, I am not to preach the gospel. I am to offer, and I am not to offer him mercy. For what? For that is what the preaching the gospel means, because he will not be benefited by it. A wicked person who wants to remain in his sins does not see the majesty of the Lord. He does not see what a great treasure is offered him. He does not understand the doctrine of salvation by grace. Either he spurns it. Or he shamefully misapplies it. He thinks, if mere faith is all that is necessary for my salvation, my sins too are forgiven. I can remain such as I am, and I shall still go to heaven. I too believe in my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they they get very careful. They, They almost slide over into a different problem there, which we constantly struggle with. But the bottom line is, is what they are claiming is that there are people who are so comfortable in their sin that they basically perceive they do not need the gospel. 
that they're good to go. And what they need is a heavy dose of law so that they will see what? Their guilt, which then should drive them to the gospel. So the correct order always is this, right? A person living in their sin who doesn't feel broken or guilty about it needs what? The law. Once they are broken and feel guilt and feel shame, what do they need? The gospel. That's the way it must work. All right? Because if you offer the gospel to someone who doesn't feel the conviction of sin, big deal. Yeah, great. Okay, sure. They've got to have that, the law has to be preached to them. And this is like, and there's not, this is nothing new. This is just historical, biblical Christianity. And we see Jesus do that all the time, right? Sometimes he offers law and no gospel, like the rich young ruler. Jesus didn't say, hey, come back and say a prayer. Hey, accept me. He told the man to do what? Keep the law. And the man's like, I did. And Jesus is like, okay, sell everything and give it to the poor. And the guy walked away. And did Jesus say, hey, come back? No. He wanted the man to feel the weight of the law. And what was he wanting the man to turn around and say? I can't do it. I don't do it. Okay, well, about time you admit that. Because no one can. All right, does that make some kind of sense? He goes on to say, a pattern after which we are to model our preaching we find in the first place in Christ, observing his conduct, we find that whenever he met with secure sinners, such as the self-righteous Pharisee, uh, in those days certainly were, he had not a drop of comfort for them, but he called them serpents, vipers, brood, pronounced a tenfold woe against them, revealed their, uh, their abominable hypocrisy, assigned to them perdition, and told them they would not escape eternal damnation. That was his wonderful preaching to the Pharisees. All right? What did he do? A, he basically, he did not offer them one drop of comfort. He called them serpents, vipers, brood, a tenfold woe against them, revealed their hypocrisy, assigned to them perdition, and told them they would not escape eternal damnation. And when you read those words, it's harsh, isn't it? No love, no mercy. He doesn't say, accept me as your personal savior. No, it's just boom, boom, condemnation, 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 because they're walking around thinking that they are all okay. Does that make sense? Although he knew that these very persons would nail him to the cross, he fiercely told them the truth. That is the point to be noted by preachers. Though knowing in advance that they will share the fate of the Lord Jesus, they must preach the law in all of its severity to those who are secure, reckless sinners to hypocrites and men who are their enemies. Whenever the preacher faces this class of people, he dare not preach anything else than law to them. Moreover, when he preaches before a multitude, his hearers must get the impression that what he says does not apply to all of them indiscriminately, but to the would-be righteous who claim the gospel for themselves. Now, you now, you just remember, I take exception to this, right? Because once again, what are they doing? I agree with the concept, but when it comes to preaching, I don't like it because it places a template upon the preaching, and I don't believe in, in, in that. When I preach, what must I do? 
First of all, I don't like the word preach anymore. I'm abandoning it. And I don't like the word sermons because I think there should be no more sermons ever preached ever again. I think what we have to do is teach the text. And guess what we teach? What's there? If it's law, law. If it's gospel, gospel. Is it possible that some person may not need to hear the law that day? It's always possible. But there's no way in a multitude of people can I try to figure out, okay, now wait, hey, Bobby, this is really for Sarah. She, needs, she really needs the law, but you don't need the law because you know, we know her. She needs it, right? I mean, like, how do I try to make that work? Hey, I'm getting ready to say something, but this only applies possibly to some of you. And some of the, I, all I can do is whatever the text says. Because any other thing you're applying, a, you're placing like a template on the Bible and you can't do that. You can't do that with anything, right? You know how I feel about that. I don't care what kind of theology you come from. Reformed, not reformed. Amillennial, dispensational, you just go through Arminian, Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, I don't care what your theological system is, where should your theological system never show up? And you're preaching. And what do I mean by that? I preach the text. And wherever the text leads us, then it may lead us to our theology, right? Then I can explain the theology. But I don't place the theology into the text. For example, what my, I was just asking my friend in Nebraska who goes to a church in Iowa, they're preaching on Matthew 24 right now. So I keep asking how's, how it's going. Guess what hasn't been mentioned? What do you think hasn't been mentioned in their teaching of Matthew 24? 70 AD. How is that humanly possible? That he keeps referencing the dispensational charts, right? So he's preaching dispensationalism. Now, I don't care that he's dispensational. But what you can't do is don't bring your dispensationalism to Matthew 24. Preach the text. And if you preach the text in Matthew 24, what is it about? 70 AD. Anybody who thinks it's about the end times is missing the point, right? Because remember, Jesus is in the temple, comes out. The disciples are like, don't you see these wonderful buildings? And Jesus like, don't you know they're all coming down? And they're like, when is this going to happen? Here are the signs. And then we read the signs and go, wars, rumors of war, earthquakes. That's about, the, that's about Jesus coming back the second time. No, it was coming. That was a sign for the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. It's just, I don't understand how we do that. Because we, I don't care if it's law. I don't care how beautiful your theology is. I don't even care how much I agree with your theology. I want to hear the text. I don't want to hear your theology. So a lot of times when I'm preaching the text, I even see it here. People are like, oh, oh, I'm getting nervous. I don't know where he's going with this. Oh, boy, I'm getting worried. Oh, no, what's happening? Where is he? Would you just calm down? Are you, are you that scared of the text? Now, sometimes I'll end and you'll be like, whew, okay, good. We're, we're still that. Okay, right? Other times you're like, oh, no, what? Do you want the text or do you want... If you don't want the text, then guess what? We'll just throw away our Bibles and I'll just come here and preach. Today, we're going we're gonna to preach this part of our theology. We won't even reference the Bible. And then you'll be like, I'm going to find a church that preaches the Bible. No, you don't want a church that preaches the Bible. You want a church that preaches the theology that you tell me is a correct theology. And you don't care if the text challenges your theology because as soon as the text challenges your theology, what do I know you won't do? You won't go home and actually study the text. 
So then I'm just, I, sometimes I just think the whole thing is a big game and we're all just wasting our time. I agree with his ex, this belief on law and gospel. I 100% believe it. But when I preach the text, what do I do with it? And I preach the text. And if it's law, what are you going to hear? And if it's gospel, what are you going to hear? Gospel. You say that could lead to confusion. It could. I know how you can avoid said confusion. Listen to all the teaching. Right? Because then you'll hear both. There we go. Isn't that amazing? But I can't in one sermon give you, I can't in in every sermon I can't give you everything, right? In one sermon, I can't say, okay, look, okay, this is going to be about 15 hours long because i got to give you everything. It's hard enough just to give you the text. So I'm not a fan of that. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of that. I'm not, I, I just, I can't, I can't stand that. I want to know the text. I don't want to know your theology. Now, if your text leads me to your theology, then guess what? I'm more than happy to hear your theology, but let the text get us there. And sometimes, what ha- you know what happens when you're looking at the text? Sometimes you'll realize your theology may not be right. And that what happened to us dealing with covenant theology? I, all of a sudden, I'm realizing, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think this works. I don't think this works. I, I changed in the middle of a sermon because what was I trying to focus on? The text. And should that not be what we do considering we believe in what doctrine? Sola scriptura, scripture alone. If the scripture is the authority, what's not our authority? Our theology. So I'm not bound by a team. I'm bound by the text. I hope that, I hope that makes sense. All right? And so I understand what they're saying here. There's just no way to do, pull off what they're saying unless the sermon becomes a formula where you just kind of say the same thing every... The text is just there. And guess what I'm supposed to do in every sermon? Preach the law and preach the gospel. Well, when I'm sitting there trying to follow that formula, does the text always give me that formula? No. Did Jesus bother to preach both? I mean, that's the most the amazing thing about the rich young ruler. He let him walk away sad. He didn't say, come back, I'll give you the gospel. Come back, I'll give you the sinner's prayer. He just let the guy walk away. That's, did, he, did he tell the Pharisees, hey, now that you've heard the law, let me give you some gospel. No. Sometimes that's the most confusing thing about reading how Jesus handled because Jesus handles things in a way that we don't. Which tells us that maybe we should just focus on all the text, all right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That I, I do. Okay. This is okay. I do agree. All right, so this, this, that's, this is a good question. Um, because Matthew 7, 6, if everybody looks at it, it refers, don't give to what is holy to dogs. I do, now, I do believe that law is holy and gospel is holy. I do believe that, right? Um, 
And, I, and so I know the text seems to kind of go one direction. Here's how I would interpret it. I don't give that which is holy to a dog in the sense that um, I, in some cases it's even useless to give someone the law. Right? Don't we all, have we not all been in a situation that you can just immediately realize that there, there's no point, right? They don't care. They don't want to hear. All you're, I mean, what are you going to do? Just bother them, argue with They don't want it. In a sense, they're a dog, and they're just going to do what? Just going to argue. It's going to tear apart. So sometimes I think this is just wisdom. Sometimes we got to make sure, when it, when is it an appropriate time to give the, the, the truth to someone? If someone doesn't want the truth, they're not interested in the truth, and they're hostile to the truth, Typically, just trying to shove it on them is going to resort. Basically, it's like picking on a, 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 a I'll give you an example. When my brother was little, uh, the, the dog's name was King, right? And I don't remember how, which house or who, how the people were related to us. But my brother, he was really little. He was really little. He kept crawling around on the floor, pulling the dog's tail, pulling the dog's tail. And everyone kept saying, leave the dog alone. He wouldn't leave the dog alone, wouldn't leave the dog alone. So he's like underneath the table all of a sudden, Rawr! And my brother came up and his nose was like barely hanging onto it. His nose got like ripped off his face. And he was like bleeding and I had to get him to the hospital and like put the nose back. Well, guess what? He was messing with the dog. Sometimes when it comes to, some Christians will just provoke and 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 yell and scream. It doesn't like, you, you see this sometimes with street preachers. You know, getting in people's face, yelling and screaming. What are you doing? You're taking what is holy and you're almost literally trying to provoke someone who clearly doesn't want it. But I think, so I think in that context, there's even a context where you don't give the law to someone. Does that make sense? So I think, I think that's the best way to understand it. I don't know who asked that question, but whoever asked the question, I don't know if that helped them. Did they just ask it or is that an old question? I just said. All right, but uh, yeah, that's... that's uh, that's a good question. I don't know if that completely helps it. It's, what, it's just that passage in itself is odd, right? Because if you look at the context in Matthew 7, he goes about, I think the verses before it is like about if you have a log in your own eye, and then all of a sudden it just goes, don't offer what is holy to the dogs or pearls to the pig. And you're like, what just happened here? Yeah, I know. It's so just so weird. Like, it's so out of, the, out of context. But I think that's the best way to understand it. Right? There's a time that you shouldn't give either to someone. You just got to know when that is. Right? You know, I, I've watched some street preacher show up to, say, a, a, a pride parade. And they're there with their signs, like, you're going to burn in hell. And they just start screaming at people. What are you doing? No, you're going to accomplish something by making people mad at you. Then you walk away like you're the martyr and that you did something for Jesus and all you did was was be a a, a jerk. So I think that that's the best way to understand it. Now, I understand what the book is trying to do because I do agree that, hey, what is holy? If someone's just comfortable, I mean, if someone doesn't want want it, you've got to just know when when to handle it. We need wisdom if we we can think of it that way, if, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. All right. Okay. Now, back to the book. All right. It says, true, our Lord says, come unto me all. But he immediately adds, who labor and are heavy laden. 
Thus he serves notice upon secure sinners that he is not inviting them. All right, maybe we could get into all that whole discussion in Matthew about what Jesus is saying there, but I get an idea. Then they go on. On a certain occasion, a rich young man approached Jesus and said to him, good teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Christ declined the title and turned to the young man with the challenge, keep the commandments. When the young man asked which, Jesus said, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man replied, all these I have observed from my youth. What do I still lack? How does Jesus Christ answer the young man's last question? Does he say you lack faith? By no means, since he is dealing with a miserable, secure, and self-righteous person, he does not preach one word of gospel to him. Jesus, Jesus accordingly said, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have tre- treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now the record states, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Please note, why did he have sorrow? Because he had all of this stuff. Not because he had sorrow that, man, I, I haven't kept the commandments. Now, if he would have had sorrow that he hadn't kept the commandments, then the young man should have been given what? The gospel. But he doesn't do that. So does Jesus stop him from walking away? Just lets him go. He departed with an accusing conscience, which no doubt told him, this is indeed a different doctrine from the one I used to hear. What he tells me, I cannot do. Did you hear that? What he tells me, I cannot do. What he tells me, I cannot do. That's what everybody, I wish the whole world of Christianity will understand that. What the law tells you, we cannot do. What the law tells us, we cannot do. You find the scripture where you get a command, you you say, well, I can do it. If you think you can do it, you're lying to yourself because you can't do it. Because you still have a depraved nature. So even what you think you're doing, it's still always corrupted with what? Sin. Remember we talked about this this morning? Right? So for example, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Can you do that? No. If you say, well, I love God. No, it doesn't say love God. It says love God with what? With every part of you, what is in you? Sin. So that means you're never going to love it purely or correctly. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as God is holy. You're going to fall short of these all the time. What we always have to realize is whenever we're confronted with a law, we are confronted with something that we cannot do. So what is our only hope? Is in Christ who did it for us. Does that make sense? All right. So we cannot do it. We cannot do it. It's just amazing if you ask most Christians, can you do it? What will most Christians say? Yes. Just, Just start talking to people you know who go to church. Christ gives us the ability to do it. Christ gives us the ability to do it. If Christ gives me the ability to do it, take that to its logical conclusion. What is the result? Perfect people. Are there perfect Christians? Then that means we can't. So then they come back and say, well, no, you can't do it perfectly. Well, if I can't do it perfectly, then I can't do it. (laughs) Okay? Because what does Jesus demand? 
perfection. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect as thy heavenly Father is perfect. What does he say in Leviticus? Be holy as I am holy. What does he say in Peter? Be holy as I am holy. What is the end result? I can't. Now, how, am I, how do I end up obeying these commands? And Christ, who did it for us, all right? That's the whole point of the doctrine of what? Imputed righteousness, right? It's imputed to us. Um, he goes on, he departed with an accusing conscience, with no, which no doubt told him, this is indeed a different doctrine than the one I'm used to hearing. What he tells me, I cannot do. I've become too greatly attached to my possessions. I would rather forfeit my fellowship with him and do, uh, I would rather forfeit my fellowship with him than do what he says. I am not going to roam the country with him like a beggar. Probably his conscience also testified to him that according to the teaching of Christ, he was damned and that hell was his goal. That was the effect which the Lord had intended to produce in dealing with this young man. In this episode, we have an example to guide us when we are dealing with those who are still secure and self-righteous. Yeah, I think the the point was he knew that he couldn't do it and he didn't turn to Christ and say, what must I do then? What can I do? If it had said, what can I do? What's the only answer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou will be saved. What's the only answer? Faith. What is not the answer? Doing. Right. That's just, it's so important. Uh, Okay. The apostles observed the same practice as their Lord. They first preached the law with such force uh, that their hearers were cut to the quick. In his first Pentecostal sermon, Peter first fastened the murder of Christ upon the hearers and that charge went home. They were frightened and asked, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Preaching the gospel to them, he tells them that they can have forgiveness of all their sins, even of the worst ones. That was the general practice of the apostles everywhere. Not only in Jerusalem, but in Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, etc. Everywhere they preach repentance first and then faith, for they knew that everywhere they were there, they were, as a rule, facing secure sinners who had not yet realized their most miserable, sinful condition. However, they do not only apply the law sternly to those who had not yet heard anything about the Christian religion, but also those who pretended to be Christians but were living securely in their sins. Bottom line is, typically what always comes first is law, then gospel. When do you reverse the order? When you find someone already broken, ashamed, hurt, and acknowledging their sin, then you don't even need to worry about the law. You give them immediately the gospel. You've got to know when to do which. There is a remarkable instance of their practice in two concluding chapters of 2 Corinthians. You can look at 2 Corinthians real quick. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. All right, 2 Corinthians 12, 20. What do we find there in 2 Corinthians 12, 20? 2 Corinthians 12, 20.
<laughs> right, okay. That's, uh, I'm in 1 Corinthians 12, right? I like the way that... Yeah, 2 Corinthians. No, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. I was laughing the way the, the NIV translates it because it, it makes it... It's, it's funny, but it, it, it cap, captures it, all right? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. For a fear... Lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as would not. In other words, hey, I'm afraid I'm going to come there and find you, and you're not going to be what I want. And when I get there, I'm not going to be what you want. Right? What's, what's the concern here? He goes, look, lest there be debates, envy and wrath, wraths, strives, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. At, at least when I come again, my God shall humble me among you that I shall be well many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanliness, fornication, lasciviousness which they have committed. In a roundabout way, what is he saying? I'm afraid I'm going to show up and you're all living in your sins securely and so then I'm going to show up and do what? I'm going to come in and I'm going to do what? I'm going to give law, 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 law. I'm not, I'm not going to show up to preach any gospel to you. I'm going to show up to condemn you and rebuke you for what you have done. I think that that's, that's kind of interesting the way that shows up there, but they, they point to this uh, here in this text. In fact, they, they write it this way. Uh, uh, th- there's a remarkable instance of their practice, of the apostolic practice, and the two concluding chapters of 2 Corinthians. The Holy Apostle writes, For I fear that perhaps I may come and find you not what I wish, and that you may find me not what you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He, he means to say, you will imagine that I'm going to come preach the gospel to you, but you'll be surprised when I come and you will hear me preach. Among the things that he's going to preach, he does not mention... Uh, uh, he doesn't, uh, there are certain things he doesn't mention. He, uh, he, he talks about fornication, theft, blasphemy, murder. But all such sins, especially hypocrisy, as you are still found in all Christian congregations. He proceeds in verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, that I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned before they have not repented of the impurity, immorality, licentiousness which they have practiced. They were not at the time living in fornication and uncleanliness, but they had formerly lived in these sins. They had become Christians by a process of reasoning, but had not truly repented of their sins. Now this where they kind of go in, they start going in the other direction. Once again, he wants to try to claim that they're not Christians, right? Because of their actions. This, it's weird, even in a book on law and gospel, they still fall into the same trap, right? Hey, if they're doing this, they can't be saved. Everybody remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, it drives me crazy how we have to fix these, this over and over and over. Yeah, he's referring to that. I can't speak to you as spiritual. As carnal, go on. What else does it say? As babes in Christ. Now, that means they are saved. But they are carnal. That means you can be carnal and yet be saved. Now the book, even though they want us to make a perfect distinction between law and gospel, look immediately what he says. They had not been regenerated. He immediately declares them not saved because they're living in sin. (laughs) 
I don't understand. You see how, even in a book that's trying to give us a proper distinction between law and gospel, we slide right back into the same trap. Man, okay. I'm going to make it very clear. Christians can live and fall into all kinds of sins. Is everybody aware of this? I know it's shocking. Okay, but they can. And when they find themselves living in sin and secure in sin, what do they need to hear? The law. To make them realize their sin and drive them back to the, uh, to the gospel. Because guess, guess who still needs law? Christians sometimes. And guess who still needs the gospel? Christians. Every day we need the gospel. And we need the law when we are, we for some reason think we no longer need the gospel. The minute, the minute you don't think you need the gospel, you need the law, okay? All right? Because you forgot your sin. I can't believe this book slides right back into that nonsense. It, it's, it's so built into our DNA, we can't get away from it. The minute someone says they're committing these sins, we're like, okay, wait, wait, no, 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 no. They can't be committing those sins? Can't be? They can't be because Christians don't commit those sins. Well, well, yeah, well, basically trying to say that, hey, they couldn't be, they're, they're unregenerate, so they need the law, okay? But let me make it very clear, all right? He, the, that passage there mentions sexual sins, does it not? All right, well, okay, we'll just, we'll just go to the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at a person with lust, now you're telling me they're not Christians who walk around looking at people with lust? Give me a break. So if you're not careful, you'll say, well, Christians can't commit any of those sins. Well, if Christians can't commit any of those sins, then you're going to tell me we're basically perfect, right? All right, let me look at this. For I fear lest when I come, I'm going to find you in a way that I don't want you, that there are debates. Are you telling me there's not debates and disagreements and divisions with Christians? Envy? You're telling me there's no envy in the life of believers? Wrath? There's no anger? Strife? Backbiting? Whispering? Swelling. In fact, all the things he's describing are happening where? In that church. And it, and it, and it goes, uh, at least when I come again, my God will humble me among you that I shall be well many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanliness, fornication, lasciviousness which they have committed. Now, guess how, he's tra- guess how this book is an interpreting repentance. They are describing repentance as a change of action. So therefore, if they've repented, then they would have stopped doing all of that. Now, the minute you say repentance is a change of action, then guess what? The first time you repent of a sin, what should be the end result if it's an action? Never do it again. Oh, yeah, a bunch of times. Because they, they, they've made this, they've done the same thing before. This, he's, he wants to say repentance is a change of action. So you know why they haven't repented? They they, well, well, they're not regenerate because they haven't stopped doing it. And what would we say? They haven't repented because they are now living securely in their sin, thinking their sin is okay because they haven't changed their mind about that sin. And so they need the law. Meaning that sometimes, even as a believer, we sometimes think incorrectly about our sin. It happens all the time. Yes? Oh, come on. There's been times you've probably tried to justify your own sin. All right. Maybe I'm the only one who does that. Okay. All right. 
So I, I, oh, that, that's just, that just drives me so crazy that this book would fall into that trap. All right? So they go on to say, so um, they had, uh, okay, it says they had become, this is his argument against these people. They had become Christians by the process of reason, but had not truly repented. They professed the Christian religion with their lips, but their faith was the, uh, not the faith of the heart. They had, been re- they had not been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Basically saying that they were not saved. Continuing, the apostle says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 2. Everybody there? This is the third time I'm coming to you, and any charge must be sustained by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come, I will not spare them. Is that pretty close to 2 Corinthians 13, 1 through 2? Right? Okay. We have, we have here an excellent example for a preacher to follow. When people begin to engage in all manner of sinful practices with impunity and imagine that everybody will have to regard them as good Christians, provided they attend church and go to communion, the pastor must say to himself, it is time that I lay down the law to my people, lest I live in careless ease while my hearers are going to perdition, and lest they rise up to accuse me in the Lord's day and say, you're the cause, why, have, why we have to suffer eternal torment. Now, I, don't, I can't stand that way of thinking, but okay. All right. The point is, I do agree that when the people are living in open sin, they have to be confronted. I completely agree with that. But you also have to realize that just because they're living in sin doesn't mean that they're not saved. It sometimes means that they are saved. And you also have to be very careful because sometimes you think what the people need is a heavy dose of law and sometimes you're so far wrong that it's not even funny. And you've got to, you've got to think that through. You've got to know when. And guess what? Is the preacher always going to do it right? No, absolutely not. And if anybody thinks there's going to, it's it not. But to, to approach this that the people... Oh, I just, oh man, that's so crazy. All right, so we're now down to two paragraphs and then we finish this thesis, all right? And we're going to do this in 10 minutes. All right, here we go. Paragraph, the, the next to the last paragraph. The apostle had to reflect that when he resumed his ministry in the Corinthian congregation, he would still find secure members whom he would have to rouse. And those godless times... The apostle did not care whether the people would turn against him and become his enemies. He told them in advance that he was not going to spare them. He would, he would tell to their faces that eternal damnation was awaiting them unless they would repent. Now see, please note. What is he saying? Do you not see how that destroys the gospel? Oh, man. Yeah. So this is why I come to Bobby. So just what he just guess what he just turned the gospel into? Hey Bobby, you're going to go to hell unless you stop doing those actions. Then the, then salvation is not based off the gospel. What is it based off of? Your actions. Now M- MacArthur does the same thing. You have to repent. Well, I do believe you have to repent. I believe that's a change of mind. And I believe God gives the change of mind. 
But if I say you have to repent in order to be saved, and I translate or, and, and define repentance as a change of action, well, then what happens? Your salvation is based off your actions. Do you see how, you see how that destroys? I want to make sure everyone understands. Now, this book did not intend to do this, right? And once again, I want you to see, we, I don't have a team, do I? I love this book. But guess what? I'm not on its team because I'm disagreeing strongly with the book because I'm not on the team. I'm just going to take it to its logical conclusion. So, look, if you don't get anything tonight, we're not going to finish the thesis, obviously. Okay, but we've got to get this down. All right, we've got to get this down. All right, does everybody follow me? It is common if you ask any most church, anybody who goes to a church, does someone have to repent in order to be saved? They will immediately say, Yes, and then ask them to define repentance, and they will change it at, they will define it as, as a change of action. Now, the minute they define it as a change of action, what did they just turn the gospel into? What makes Bobby saved? Change of action. Do you see how you talk about, we talked about subtle this morning, right? That's a subtle way of getting you from the gospel. It sounds I used to preach that. Because that's what I taught repentance was my whole Christian life. Because I was influenced by this book. Which almost all the evangelical church has been influenced by this concept. You gotta repent. You gotta repent. Now what do they say? Well, I mean, it's not, you know, you're saved by what Jesus does, but you have to repent. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm saved by what Jesus does... Well, then repentance can't be a change of action because I'm not saved by a change of action. I'm saved by the imputed righteousness of Christ. So then repentance can't be a change of action. It has to be a change of mind so that now I'm not looking to my action. I'm looking to him. Does everybody see that? Now, MacArthur would say, no, we don't preach it this way, but this is exactly how it would be preached. If, it's, if, it's, if I'm preaching this the way that these people claim, what would this look like? Hey, Bobby, change your action or you're not saved. And people say, no, no, no. Oh, no, well, what we do is we tell him to believe in Jesus, but if he doesn't change his action, then he was never saved. They just play a little semantic game that way. It's the same, you're saying the same thing. Well, well, we also, uh, yeah. And, and they're judging someone's salvation not based on what Christ did, but what Bobby is doing. That is insane. Oh, man. Okay, let me read this again. The apostle had to reflect that when he resumed his ministry in the Corinthian congregation, he would still find secure members whom he would have to rouse. In these godless times, the apostle did not care whether the people would turn against him and become his enemies. Oh, I, I, I agree. As a pastor, you can't worry about who becomes your enemy. Look, I hate it. I don't like when people get upset. I don't like when people leave. It bothers me. It hurts me. But I can't. What am I supposed to do? If I, if every, look, by this point in ministry, if every time someone came to me and didn't like what I preached, I would have already just given up. Because everyone always has the way they want me to preach it. It's just, I mean, man, alive. I I don't even know what I'm supposed to do. It's just like, can you just write my sermons for me? But nobody wants to put in the work to write the sermons for me. But then they don't like the way that I'm preaching them. It's, it's maddening. 
All right, so here we go. He told them in advance that he was not going to spare them. He would tell to their faces, listen, that eternal damnation was waiting them unless they would repent. He would rebuke them as being people who had been found out as continuing to sin against their conscience and yet claim to be Christians. So in other words, what he's saying is you can't continue to sin and be a Christian. What is so broken in our heads? So I want to make sure we're good to go. Does everybody understand this? That if I preach, repentance must be a part of salvation. And if I say repentance is a change of action, then what I am saying is Bobby must change his action in order to be saved. Now what they say is no, 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 no. Bobby just has to be willing to change his action. Right? And then, and then, if he's really saved, his action will save. Oh, it won't be perfect. And then they'll start watering it down, watering it down, watering it down. And then either you water it down to the point that it no longer means anything. Okay? Well, they do sometimes. And then they'll turn it around on another time and say, where's the change of action? Okay? So either it means a change of action. And if it means a change of action, then how can Bobby know that he's saved? Based off what? He does. And the minute you think you're saved based off what you do, you've turned the gospel into a salvation by works and not a salvation by Christ. How does anyone know they're saved? By what Christ did, not what we do. Because the best we do is filthy rags. We can't get away from it. It's built into our DNA. You know what? In some ways, that to me confirms that the gospel is from God. You know why? Because it goes against our very thinking. It goes against our very nature. We, we can't help ourselves. We've got to bring the law into it. Even in a book that's trying to draw the distinction, it's merging it. The gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you're not saved by what you do, but what Christ did. And now this turns around and says, hey, what's the gospel? Repent and you'll be saved. What does that mean? Stop sinning. So that means I would have to stop sinning in order to be saved. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. How many sins did you commit after you were saved? Well, didn't you repent of those before you got saved? Did, you, did, anybody, did anybody repent of sins before they got saved that they committed after they got saved? Okay, well, Bobby's the only one to say that he did. Oh, you didn't? You used to... Right, I'm saying, when did you repent of sins when you got saved that you committed after you were supposedly repented? That you still commit, right? Yeah, and you do. All right, meaning then according to this view, you didn't really repent. And if you didn't really repent, you're not saved. That's why we have to get rid of repentance as a change of action. 
Do I believe the change of mind can lead to a change of action? Absolutely. I think, how did you say it this morning, Sarah? It should motivate the change of action. I think that's the word. It should inspire it. I completely agree because I think differently. My thinking is that action used to be okay. Now it's sinful. But the reason I know it can't be a a change of action that's perfect is because the Apostle Paul said the things I want to do. So his mind was changed, but he was still committing the action he didn't want to commit. So if you say repentance is a change, so they play this game where repentance is a change of action, but it's not perfect. Well, then how do I judge if I've repented or not? It's a change of action, but it's not a perfect change of action. Well, then how do I know if my repentance was perfect? Or good in it. You see how subjective that becomes? But I can know this. I've changed my mind about it. Now I don't want to do it. But I still do it. Now, sometimes there's a part of you, right? There's still, well, there's always going to be a part that you still want to. Okay, that, that's a very, I thank you, Twilight. Well, at least the Pierces are honest about how sinful they are, okay? Right? But, but it's very true, though. There's a part of us that still wants to do it. Our mind tells us it's wrong, but our sinful nature says, that's pretty good, right? The things I want to do, I don't. Yeah, that, that struggle is there. Oh, yeah, with my mind, I serve the law of God. Flesh. The law of sin. Rome, the end of Romans chapter 7, the most important. I, I, I don't even know how many times I've tried to tell everyone that that verse is the most important. All right, last paragraph. All I can do is read it. All right, here we go. Accordingly, we may not preach the gospel, but must preach the law to secure sinners. I completely agree with that. We must preach them uh, into hell before we can preach them into heaven. Okay, I got no problem with that. By our preaching, our hearers must be brought to the point of death before they can be restored to life by the gospel. They must be made to realize that they are sick unto death before they can be restored to health of the gospel. First, their own righteousness must be laid bare to them so that they may see of what filthy rags it consists. Then, by the preaching of the gospel, they are to be robed in the garment of the righteousness of Christ. That's that's an amazing paragraph, isn't it? It's just weird that he contradicted that in the previous paragraph, but I completely agree. That's exactly, I mean, that's a beautiful picture. They must first be induced to say from the heart, I, a lost and condemned creature, in order that they may be induced next to exclaim joyfully, O blessed man that I am. They must first be reduced to nothing by the law, in order that they may be made to be something to the praise of the glory of God by the gospel. I completely agree with that last paragraph is beautiful. It's awesome. It's one of the best paragraphs in the entire book. What drives me crazy is the previous paragraph completely destroys it. Because the gospel is not good news. If the gospel means I've repented and I've changed my behavior and if I don't, I'm not saved. That's not good news. In fact, that, that immediately destroys what? The imputed righteousness. Because my salvation is based on what I do. It cannot be based on what we do. That destroys the whole thing. Well, the main thing is we can't do it. If we're just honest with ourselves, we can't. We, this morning, we looked at MacArthur's test once again, the nine-point test in Sunday school. What did we find out in that nine-point test? Yeah, nobody, could, no, nobody passed it. Okay. Yeah, selfless love, uh, obedience, right? I mean, all the things, and it's like, 
But of course, you know, you'd have to water it down. But if you water it down, then the test is no longer like it it doesn't make any sense. It, It doesn't make any sense. But I trust me, there's plenty of people who may not have been here who would say, no, that test is the way I know you're saved. I mean, if you're if you're going to look to me, you put it this way. This is what I when the people want to argue with me, I don't even know why they want to argue. Look, feel free to go live your life looking at yourself. Just leave me alone. Because no one can lay charge at God's elect. That's what scripture says. We're always using it on everybody else. Exactly. That's what the test becomes. So we can say on social media, I don't think they're saved. I don't think they're saved. I don't think they're saved. Well, because obviously you judge salvation not based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, but on the actions of people. And if you judge someone's salvation on the basis of their action, then guess what's the basis of their salvation? Their action. And the minute we say the salvation is on the basis of their action, guess where we've returned? To Roman Catholicism. Protestants never left Roman Catholicism. I'm going to end with this, and I know it's controversial, but I say it. We did not leave Roman Catholicism because of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. We left Roman Catholicism because we didn't want someone else telling us what to do. That's simple. We wanted to be the Pope. Because if we truly left it because of justification by grace alone and faith alone, we would really believe what we say. But we don't believe what we say. Even in a book that's trying to give us the right gospel, it still reverts right back to, how do I know someone's saved? Based off their action. Which, which again, let me, hear, let me say it again. If I judge Bobby's salvation on the basis of his action, then what is the basis of his salvation? His actions. Therefore, you're saved by works. And even though they can say, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that if someone is saved, they will change. Well, you're judging their salvation based off the change. So what's the basis of the salvation? The change, not the imputed righteousness. There may be a change. We hope there's a change. But I know, well, it's never going to be perfect. And the change is in the mind. And the action I can't judge the action because if I judge the action, what test do I have to use to judge it? Perfection, because that's the standard. I can't judge Bobby on some curve and go, well, I think that's good enough. I think Bobby's good enough. That's that's so that's subjective and arbitrary. But even if I do that, I'm I'm still banking the basis on his action. I don't know how people can't see that. You try to explain it and they don't understand. All they can, all they, you know, the only thing they can say, antinomian. That's all, that's, I don't know what else to say. Antinomian. And you're like, okay, wow, woo. All right, could you tell me a, a book uh, written by an antinomian? What's the origin of antinomian? You start asking basic questions, I don't know anything. But hey, but they can accuse you of it. Isn't it great that you can accuse someone of something you don't know anything about? That's, that's got to be awesome. That's, that's, we've got to love that. All right, all right that's, that's some serious stuff. I can't believe that, that, that last paragraph is so beautiful. But the paragraph before <laughs> ruins it. So we'll, we'll start next time with that last paragraph. And I'll, I may send out that last paragraph like as a notification, maybe Church One app or one of the apps, because uh, it's so beautiful. But man, they, I, I, I feel mad that we couldn't end on such a more positive note because they so destroyed it. 
in the previous paragraph. All right, we'll stop. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Everyone here, we've made some of the same mistakes, the same failures with repentance and salvation and righteousness. Lord, forgive us for how we have so messed up and destroyed your gospel because of our own pride, arrogance, law mentality. Forgive us for that. And just we are so grateful that our salvation is not based on what we do, but what your son accomplished perfectly. Because our hope in anything else is a vain hope. Our hope in Christ is secure. Let us put our faith and trust in him alone. And we ask it in his name. And God's people said,